So you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're right at about halfway through this fourth gospel. John chapter 10, and we looked at verse uh, 22 through 31, and this morning we'll be looking at verse 32 through 42. And to sort of get a running start at our passage here, which is the last passage in this chapter, let's back up to verse 22 that we took on last week so that we get the context as we move forward. John 10, beginning in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So that the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it is not written, is it not written, rather, in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them... Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, did not, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Father, we thank you for the ending that we read here. It is grievous to us that there was such opposition to everything that you had said to those, your people, Israel, to the Jewish people, Lord, that was rejected that made them angry in such a way that they wanted to kill you. And in fact, they did. They must have been pleased at that moment. That is, until the empty tomb. And because you have risen, O Lord, that is our path. It's a path formed by our belief in who you were. Our agreement that as this crowd finishes this passage by saying everything that John the Baptist said about you 
is true. He spoke the truth about you, and it's the truth that sets us free in that they believed, many, many believed. So, Lord, as we finish up this time in Jerusalem and move out to the Transjordan area, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to take our mind's eye and put it there, to hear these words as they are, the very words of God, spoken to our hearts by one who seeks to rescue our hearts. May you do so for your glory's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is, as I mentioned last time, this is his public, final public declaration of his deity. He's been through this several times as we've gone through uh, the Gospel of John, particularly from chapter 5 all the way through. He's making these declarations that just really evoke uh, the most visceral responses from the Jews that, well, they hate him. They're opposed to him. He threatens everything they have carved out and called their faith, their, their religion. All man-centered, all man-generated. There's no God in it. He's come to clarify things. He's come to clear up what is clearly an error in costing them their eternal lives. But every time he does that, because it requires that not just another perfect human, which is impossible anyway, but it must be God himself who assured us through the Old Testament prophets that it would be God alone who would be our redeemer. And so we trust in that. And he is fulfilling all of prophecy. He is clearly the Messiah, the one who is sent that we might be saved. So from here, he departs, of course, and goes across the Jordan. He's traveling somewhere, I don't know, between 30 and 50 miles to get away. He's going back where John the Baptist had first started baptizing. John had moved on and baptized at another place after this. But it's a place where Jesus showed up, too. If you remember that chapter, and people were upset, the people that were with John the Baptist, that uh, Jesus is over there baptizing. Is that in conflict? And of course, of course, John the Baptist clarifies that for them. So this is, a, this is a welcome place. This is a place where he can get away from all that's going on in Jerusalem. And he can be with his disciples because this turns a corner now. Because in chapter 12, we see the triumphal entry. He ends up coming back to Bethany in chapter 11. He ends up healing Lazarus, calls him out. You remember that. As a matter of fact, his disciples didn't want to come back from the Transjordan area. They felt safe there. It was, there were people that believed John the Baptist as the forerunner, saying what they said about Jesus, and many believed. Why would you want to leave that? Why do you want to go back to a place where every time you said anything that connected you with deity... They want to kill you. And then feeling so grand as to say bold statements like, well, we will go with you and die with you and all of those grand statements that turned out to be untrue as their cowardice and fears surfaced and actually they scattered because the shepherd was being struck. And when the shepherd is struck, the sheep scatter. And that's exactly what we see as Jeremiah had prophesied. So it says the time of what they refer to as the Feast of Dedication. It's also called the Feast of Lights, or today, Hanukkah. And I mentioned that 
last time. He's walking in the temple. He's walking in the uh, colonnade or the Solomon's porch, it's also called. That's one of the areas that's not being worked on that is an existing part of the temple that's Solomonic. In other words, the temple that Solomon built, but that was destroyed by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., After they spent their 70 years in captivity in Babylon, they came back, and in 516, it was rebuilt and rededicated. So that's 70 years. God is precise in everything, even on this, as it struck me. He's not only, only, uh, you know, nothing is random with him. He's not only divinely, sovereignly appointing every event that takes place, but also its timing. And that's what struck me this week, particularly in the study as I'm looking at this. I thought, this is the Feast of Dedications and the Feast of of Lights. So it's rededicating because you remember roughly the decade of 170 to 160 B.C., uh, the Syrian armies, the Seleucids, were coming and conquering Jerusalem, and they had conquered it, and they desecrated the temple. You remember by slaughtering a pig on the altar uh, to Zeus is what they called it in the Holy of Holies. It was absolutely, this has got to be the most horrible time if you're a Jewish person back in that day. So, of course, that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is his name. He's the Seleucid leader, the Syrian leader that came in and conquered Jerusalem and then we have the, uh, uh, the Maccabeans under Judas Maccabeus who came and actually recaptured Jerusalem for the Jews. He was a, a warrior and a priest. His father was the well-known priest who was exercising guerrilla warfare. Mattathias was his name, and he's exercising guerrilla warfare against the Simeons. It's all they could do, just surprise attack them here and then retreat and so on. But his son... Judas Maccabeus rose up. He was a mighty warrior, took the, the armies and organized them and actually conquered the Syrian armies, the Seleucids, and rededicated it. And I thought, well, this timing is perfect. This timing is perfect. It's the temple's rededication. <laughs> and there's Jesus on Solomon's porch. There's Jesus. And it reminded me, it made me think of, you remember uh, Stephen's speech? in chapter 7 of Acts, when we went through that years ago. In verse 46 to 50, just before they stoned him to death, listen to what he said. This is, this is of King David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to, be, to, asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. He wanted to build, David wanted to build a temple. He goes on, verse 47, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. What were the Jews, the religious intelligentsia that are standing there listening, thinking of that because of what they've made that stone temple into? That's what he is rebuking. That's what Stephen is refuting. You think that you can build a structure that will house God? He goes on to say, he quotes, he says, um, uh, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did my, not my hand make all of these things? 
I made the rocks you guys stacked on top of each other. I grew the trees that you used, the cypress and all of the, the, the woodworking and the carpentry that went on. It was by design. And oh, I remember when we went through this, I had reminded you, God didn't tell David to build him a temple. He instructed him after David decided he wanted to build a God, to keep God there. They had conquered Jerusalem. David was the king. I want to build God a temple. That's where he'll stay. What did God tell his people to do much earlier? What did he tell them to build? A tabernacle. He wasn't in that tabernacle. Where was he manifested? You remember when they went through the wilderness? Where was he manifesting himself? In, in, yes. Yeah. Cloud by day, fire by night. You think that you can build something and keep me captive in it? No, because see, then it's what you make of it in your, in your puny, sin-sick, shriveled-up hearts. And now you have Jesus right at the time of the Feast of Dedications. Perfect. Why? Well, that reminded me of John 4, 23 to 24, where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. The hour is coming, is now here. You remember this. When the true worshipers will worship the Father, how? In spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Not temple builders made with hands. God is, he didn't say that, I just inserted that. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now that's New Testament. Now that's Jesus. Let's go a little further. Let's see what Paul said. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 20, we just read this actually, this in the first hour, or do you not know that your body is what? The temple. Ah, yeah, he's spirit. So he dwells in us. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You don't own you, <laughs> if you're a believer, for you were not bought with a price. So glorify God where? In your soma, in your body. This is a vessel to give full, corporeal, three-dimensional expression of the loves that I have in my heart. And the greatest love of these for us is to be... Huh? It, who? What? Who is it? Who has greatest value in us? How did I catch you off guard here? <laughs> Jesus Christ, yeah? In us. In us. So there he is, walking on Solomon's porch at the Feast of Dedication, also called the Feast of Lights. The same thing. There's significance here that Jesus is here at that particular time, that celebration. The Feast of Lights, Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Who's walking on Solomon's porch? Him who is light. Isaiah 60, verse 1-3. to Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. You and me giving expression 
to the risen Christ quite literally, quite frankly, in us, using our body, our voices, our eyes, our feet to go to places where Christ would minister. There he is walking on Solomon's porch. And that's what it said in John 1, verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So there's no coincidence here. This, this is nothing random. But we can pass over these things real quick. It was the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights and miss the significance of Christ being up there in what were the remnants of the temple that they rebuilt in 516 under Zerubbabel and the older people that were attending that day, if you remember, Nehemiah, they cried. Why? It was so much smaller, wasn't it? They wept. This isn't anything like Solomon's temple. And they wept. Their mistake was weeping over brick and mortar. So King Herod comes along just before Christ, Herod the Great, and then that's at the advent of Christ, and he's expanding the temple. He wants to make it grand again. So it's under construction. Never finished it, because in 70 AD, Titus Vespasian came and conquered Jerusalem. He wanted to eliminate Judaism and tore down the temple completely, and that's what Jesus was talking about. You tear that temple down, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. What were they thinking? What did they accuse him of at his trial? He said he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. You see how he catches them up in their mistakes all the time? No, it would be, he would be torn down on the cross, put in the tomb, and in three days he would what? Rise. They miss all this. And we do too if we, don't, if we aren't careful to look carefully into the text prayerfully that the Lord would reveal these very significant things to us. He's speaking to us. He's, he's, he's explaining things to us. He's making it plain and understandable to us. So I've got five statements I want to make here this morning based upon this passage as we move on. The first one is, let's look at, in these first few verses, the accusation from unbelieving Jews. What is the accusation? The Jews had picked up stones again to stone him. You know, this picked up, this, this word picked up is bestadzo in the Greek. It, it means also to bear or carry. Um, in uh, Galatians 6, verse 2, um, we are to bear one another's burdens. It's a carrying. So there's a very strong suggestion here that they had the rocks with them. Why? Well, because... Back in um, chapter 5, if you flip back a little bit, we've seen this happen before, didn't we? Verse 17 and 18. And it's every time, every time he refers to his deity in verse 17. And remember, just to set this up for you to get you the, the context. This was right after he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, okay? You remember that. In verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. So he says something important here, John does. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even what? 
calling God his own father, making himself, what? Equal with God, that's right. This is, this they couldn't take. That, if it's true, actually is, does constitute blasphemy. So there's this thought that they had the rocks with them because since chapter 5, they knew what he was saying. They knew what the penalty is. They want him arrested or they want him stoned on the spot. And by the time you get to chapter 10, the, the thinking is with this bastazo is they've, they're carrying the rock. The whole place was under construction. Solomon's porch was one of the only places that wasn't under construction because it was preserved from that, from that temple. And that's where the Christians would gather after Christ would be risen to witness Christ is on Solomon's porch, where those colonnades are, and that's where he is. You remember chapter 8. It happened there too, didn't it? Chapter 8, verse 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what? I am. The eternally existent one? I mean, it's one thing to say that before King David was, I am, or before the prophet Isaiah 700 years ago, but uh, Abraham, you're going back to Genesis 12. You lived before then, right? Okay. Thousands of years ago? No. What does he say after that? Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So now you have this, you have this, Standing with rocks, following him around. Go ahead, say something again. And this is the most strongest, this is the strongest testament to what he's clearly saying. I and the Father are what? One. They're ready to throw. Verse 32 in our text, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, and it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. It's interesting, this good works is erga kalos. Erga kalos. Works is erga. We get energy and words like that from it. But do you remember what kelos was? Ego eimi, ho poimain, ho kelos. Ho poimain, ho kelos. That's verse 14. I am the shepherd, the good. The shepherd, the good. So this word kelos, you remember we parked on that a while because it's very significant. It's not the typical word for good, which would be agathos. We get the word, the name agatha from that because it's just the general term for good. No, this is, this is, this carries the idea of beauty. These, these are perfect works. These are beautiful works that are clearly from God. That's why he keeps pointing to them and calling them not just works, but kelos. These are good works from the Father. He's making it abundantly clear which one of those that is pure that is virtuous that is valuable which one of those works 
those good works are you going to stone me for? No, that's not what we're stoning you for. So they're looking again at his words. His words. They're not, they're not bothering with the works, but they're not even looking at that to validate who he is, which is why he came to do the good works. That's why he passed on those abilities to the apostles as they would be the sent ones who go out in his name. They would be able to extract demons and they would be able to heal and so on. It's to validate their message. Same with Jesus. Well, if you're not going to, if you're, if, if you're not going to, if you disagree with what I'm saying, look at the works. Just look at what is being done here. And he said to the disciples, you remember greater works than these will you do. He means greater in extent. So blasphemy, this is the charge, by the way, that Jesus got Jesus executed. And it's, if it were true that he's making himself out to be God and he's only just a man, Leviticus 24, 16 says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Well, it's blasphemy for, a, for just a man to say that I am God, you being a man. It's interesting, isn't it, when you reflect on the fact that, ironically, he was a man, wasn't he? He, he, he is a man. You're right about that, he could have said. He's a man. Verse 14 of John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeah, I'm a man. I am that. That's what it would take to be our sacrifice, to be a propitiation, to be, this is the substitutionary role that Jesus had. He had to be a man, but he had to be without sin, and of course he was. You, and then they say, you being a man, make yourself God. First of all, Jesus didn't make himself God. He was God. He wasn't going around saying, nice to meet you all. My name is Jesus, and I am God. He doesn't say that. Sometimes I remember wondering that years ago as a young Christian. I'm like, why don't you just say it? I sounded like the Pharisees here. Like, just say it plainly. Why is it sort of cryptic? Why is it sort of um, embedded in the things that you say? And then he says when he gets to parables that they clearly won't understand just as disciples have to have it explained to them. Why can't you just speak plainly? Everything's timing. Every word is precise. If you've noticed the escalation in the, pre, in the um, declaration of his deity, I and the Father are one is, I mean, before Abraham was, I am. I am doing the works of the Father. Yes, that's clear deity. But when he says, I and the Father are one, it's time to throw stones. This is blasphemy. He didn't walk around saying, I am God. He, he didn't need to, did he? Because of what he says here. Everything that he declared was saying that he's God. Everything that he made clear to them, he, he did speak plainly. And everything that he did in terms of the erga kalos confirmed it. There should be absolutely no question. And yet even to this day, we'll get argument, won't we? It's like, how could this last 2,000 years, these stories? If it weren't true... 
they would have disappeared within years of his life because they would have been false. They would have been proven false. They survived two millennia because they're true. Well, and even beyond that, they are Scripture, the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God that cannot, will not be broken. It's eternal. Second, Jesus appeals to them then, of course, with the Scriptures. This is a new tack. Who did he use that tactic with before? I'll give you a hint. Answering him with Scripture. Satan, the temptation, right? That's what he's doing here. He's getting them to look at their Scriptures. Why? Because they venerate their Scriptures. They, they, they just uphold their Scriptures. Why do they make a big deal out of Scripture? Because they're the sole possessors of it. God gave it to us. We're God's people. We have not only the possession of the Scriptures, His Word, but we have the deep understanding and knowledge of it. We are the protectors of it. And you, sir, are you are violating it right now. Straight from Leviticus, you are blaspheming God. So this is offensive, but that never bothered Jesus before. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Do you like the fact that he says your law? That's what you make of that law. That, that's what you've made of it. That's yours. That wasn't the intention of it. I like that. That's good. It is writ not written. Is it not written in your law? And then this is in inner quotes. I said you are gods. That's actually in the word that they have. You know, it's Psalm 82, verse 6. In your law. So ordinarily that refers to, if you look elsewhere, when they referred to the law, they're typically speaking of the first five books of Moses. Right? The Pentateuch, the first five books. But no, this includes the whole law, and in this case, the Psalms. So Jesus is so clever in appealing to something that they thought so highly of. And he uses their own scriptures or what they've made of them, their supreme knowledge and their fastidious compliance with all of those rules and laws of Moses. Well, doesn't it say that in Psalm 82? Yeah. Doesn't it say you are gods? And it does because he's talking to, actually they're getting rebuked there. They're getting rebuked. These are, these are human rulers and judges. And they're getting rebuked because they're wicked. That's what Psalm 82 is all about. So his point is limited to, well, if God didn't have a problem saying you are gods to these wicked rulers, why does it bother you so much that I would say that I'm the son of God? In fact, in, in Luke 6, those who would love their enemies would become the sons of God. You remember that part of the Sermon on the Mount? Why, why is that okay? But you find this so appalling that I would say I'm the son of God. That shouldn't be a big deal to you. It's an amazing bit of reason. It's an amazing bit of reason, and that's what our next point will be, but I want to look at Psalm 82, the second verse, and then 6 and 7. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? I said, you are God's sons of the Most High. 
all of you. These are humans he's talking to, and actually they're wicked. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Why would he call them that? By the way, the Hebrew word there is Elohim. Elohim. This is God's, but it's in our English. It's a lowercase g, and it should be because they're just human beings. But he calls them Elohim. Didn't I say that you were Elohim? What does that mean? That means you're to represent me. I've appointed you providentially to be the rulers and the judges. You, be, you should be fair, unbiased. And instead, you're, you're partial, <clears throat> you're unfair, you are wicked. I said you are gods, but look at what you're doing. Spurgeon wrote of the, that moniker, didn't I say you are gods? This was their ex officio, that's Latin for out of the office, an office that he had given them. The ex officio character, not their oral or spiritual relationship. There must be some government among men, right? We have to have that. God gave that to us. Look at Romans 13, 1 to 7, 1 Peter chapter 2. You can see where he's appointed a government that we're to submit to, unless it calls us to do things against the word of God. God allows men, Spurgeon goes on, to rule over men and endorses their offices. These are judges. Judges would have no right to condemn the guilty if God had not sanctioned the establishment of government, end quote. He sanctioned that. Read Romans 13, 1 to 7, and you'll see that. God has appointed these men. Didn't I say that you are God's? You are Elohim because you represent whose law? His to be adjudicated fairly to everyone. That's why justice is blind, right? Everyone's treated the same way, and you're not doing that to benefit yourselves. You've been given the word of God, so you're called to be my agents of true justice based upon the laws of the Almighty, you're, yet you're acting just like other men unjustly, and so you'll die like other men. Three... So this is an appeal to reason. He's appealing to their reason. Think about this. That's why he refers to that, that expression. Because that's what they're so upset about. You're calling yourself the son of God. Well, that's what God said in Psalm 82. You are God's sons of the Most High. El Elyon, sons of El Elyon. That's not some third category, special agency risen above all other human beings. No, it's an office that you are to fulfill and bring me glory by adjudicating properly with the means and the tools I've given you to run the governing of men. They didn't do it. They're not exactly doing that perfectly now either, are they? Verse 35 and 36, this is their appeal, his appeal to reason. Jesus appeals to their sense of reason. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, so they were the ones to whom God gave his law, as I mentioned the positions of authority that they would have, and they're not doing so good at it. 
But this idea, he inserts, and the scriptures cannot be broken, that sort of seals them or, or prevents them from reinterpreting the Mosaic law. Or actually, it's not the Mosaic law. It's in this case, it's the Psalms. He inserts this to remind them this, these scriptures cannot be broken. This cannot be broken is luo in the Greek. L-U-O. It means dissolved, loosed, released, removed, dismissed, nullified, destroyed, abolished, and that's the short list. It means a lot of things that make it absolutely and abundantly clear that not one bit of the word can ever be taken out. So you can't manipulate Psalm 82 verse 6. You can't do it. If you took out one word, you've just disrupted something that is impossible to disrupt and you don't have scriptures. If you don't rightly interpret the scriptures in its fullness, in its wholeness, you haven't got the scriptures. You can't take pieces out to, your, to fulfill your own ends. God will not bless that. Scripture cannot be broken. This is, as I mentioned, the inspired, inerrant, eternal, authoritative word of God that is eternal. And it's like, it's like a, a chain or a rope that if you pull one part out, it, the whole thing falls apart. You don't have the Scripture anymore. That's his point. So there's a massive biblical concept that's embedded in this. Embedded in that statement, the scripture cannot be broken. It's, it's impossible. If, in fact, you have the scripture, Jesus is revealing to us, actually, his own divine view of scripture. That's what's wonderful about this particular bit of the passage. Scripture cannot be broken. Coming from the lips of Jesus... It cannot be broken. It's a seamless chain that if you pull one link out, it falls apart. Matthew 18, Matthew 5, verse 18 in the NAS, For truly I say to you, until, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. This speaks to that idea of luo. There won't be one little jot or t not one dotting of the I or crossing of the T that will ever be removed. They're his words. They're pure. The veracity is unchallenging. The veracity is 100% down to the last stroke of each letter in the originals. That's Jesus' view. J.C. Ryle said, It is as though he said, Wherever the scripture speaks plainly on, a sub on any subject, there can be no more question about it. The cause is settled and decided, end quote. That's it. So if God called these unjust judges Elohim, gods, or sons of El Elyon, sons of the Most High, you're upset because I'm saying that about myself? Why? I imagine it was pretty quiet at that moment. 
they don't challenge him on this profound truth. They've got a lot to think about. But I would say, I would suggest that they're seething inside. You don't correct Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Not if you want to live. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, is what? The aponoustos, it's breathed out by God. Instead of saying inspired, probably more accurate to say, is the expiration of God. These are his words down to the smallest degree. All of them are his. 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Even 2 Samuel 23, 1 and 2, the last words of David, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Jesus says at his arrest, said in Matthew 26, 56, but all this, even the arrest that's taken place right then and there, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be what? Fulfilled. Then all of his disciples split. They all scattered after that. Go on into Acts. At the ascension, Peter, Acts 1, verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. That's why Peter quotes David in his speech, in his long sermon there in chapter 2. You remember Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago at many times in many ways, God did what? Spoke. To whom? To our fathers. How? By the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's the scriptures that we have now. He's not going to speak anymore. Everything he has to say to us is right here. And it better be eternal. How else could it transcend time and still be pertinent in every age, in every culture, in every country for thousands of years? It's still transformational. It's still powerful to when the truth permeates the heart to light it up. He is the light of life and bring it to life in that regenerating moment so that you see the truth of who Christ is. That's the only way it can be is if it actually, in fact, is the Word of God, which cannot, cannot be broken. That's the only way it could speak to every generation throughout the ages. Every letter must be linked together in order to remain eternal. If one, if anything's taken out, you don't have the Scriptures. But there's this... uh, in seminary, you go deep in things like this, but the, the superintendence of God, it's a wonderful area of study, of theology, how God superintended to make sure that through that whole progression into the second and third century, it took a while to come up with the full canon of what would be acceptable as God's word. It's, it's remarkable. There's books on that that you can read if you, if you cared to. I have some in my library. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful reading. Certainly, if God called these corrupt rulers gods or sons of the Most High, why is it so outrageous that he should say that 
I am the Son of God. Point number four, verse 37 and 38. Jesus appeals to his undeniable, indisputable works. And as he characterized them, remember that it was Jesus that called them erga kelos. They're good. They're pure. They're perfect. They're perfect. They're holy. They're, they're from heaven. You all aren't capable of any of the things that I did. From the feedings of the 5,000, which sustains and brings life, he is life. And the life was the light of men. He is the light. He is the phos. We have the laknos, the small lamp, the lamp unto our feet. He is a light to our path, right? The psalmist. Amazing. Just amazing. If I am not doing the works of my Father, if this, in other words, if this work isn't coming straight from heaven, from, if this isn't the work of God, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's not doing this to irritate them. He loves them. This is the word that cannot be withheld from you. If you deny who I am, you do not have salvation. It's not going to be in the ministrivia of your legalism in the Mosaic law. It's not going to be your straining at gnats. It's not going to be by you tithing leaves of, of herbs. It's not going to come that way. You need to recognize who I am or you perish for eternity. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is, and all of this is doing to them is making them more, they're probably clutching those rocks. They're seething. The fact that they hated whatever Jesus said, this is the point. The fact that they hated whatever Jesus said sullied all of his works. Because if you think that what he's saying is blasphemy, it doesn't matter what he does. Do you remember what their assessment of his, his works were in another place? You do those works by Beelzebul. They're the works of Satan. And then Jesus says, he's so brilliant, it's just awesome. How, how can a house divided against itself still stand? Satan's casting out Satan? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Satan's not going to be running around making the blind man see, making the deaf hear, making the lame walk. Why would he do that? He wants people dead because then they belong to him if they die without Christ. That's a fact. So they think that, that it doesn't matter. You, you've sullied all of those kalos erga. You, you've sullied all of the good works. They're not good. They're not virtuous. They come from Satan. Because only Satan, you've got only two options with that kind of power. It's either going to be the power of God himself or the power of Satan, if God allows. Right? Nicodemus said to him, remember when he came by night, John 3, verse 2, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless you that you do, excuse me, unless God is with him. 
Hey, he gets it. If, if you open yourself up to the truth, you get it. You see who he is. If you have a sincere desire to listen to what he says and a sincere desire to know what is it, God, that you would have me know? What would you have me realize, understand? What would you have me embrace? He gets it. It's like, well, watch the one who can come and only perform the works of God himself and then listen to what he says. But if they hate what you say, and they hate you, the good works are nullified. They're not good. They're evil. John 5, 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, John the Baptist, of course, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. There, he said it to them. John 7, 31. Yet many of the people believed him. So there's those believers. Remember, you would, he goes through like a winnowing fork at just precisely how Simeon prophesied when he was a baby at the temple. He said, this is, he's going to be, he's going to separate people. The rise of some and the fall to others. It's a polemic. We've talked about that over and over as we've gone, as we, as we've gone through John. Many of the people believed him, John 7, 31. They said, when the Christ appear, will he do more signs than this man has done? So obviously the implication is, no. How could he do more works than what he's done? Feeding tens of thousands of people from five loaves and two fish. How does that work? And then go and feed 4,000 more. How does he raise people resuscitate them from a dead state in a tomb for four days, rotting. How does that work? Yes, this man's no one to trifle with. This is the God-man. He's one to be feared as well as loved for what he's come to do for you and I. John 9, 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. Doesn't that sound ridiculous now? It's, it's ludicrous. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You've got things upside down. Your entire religion is upside down. You need to get it right side up. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So there's those who are sincerely investigating. And there was division among them. Precisely, that's what he came to do. I came not to bring peace but a sword. I will set a man at variance with his own son and a daughter with her own mother. Those who are your enemies will be the enemies of your own household. That's what you came to do? Well, that's going to be the outcome of it. Yeah, because there's going to be those who say, no, I need Christ. I don't want to perish in my sin. I get that. I'm a sinner. Yes. Then follow me. Pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Deny yourself and follow me. So there's a, there's a chasm here, a wide chasm between those who believed and those who didn't. Now we go future where John 11 when we get there, Lord willing, 
John 11, the raising of, of Lazarus. Verse 47 and 48, after he had already risen, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin get together and they start colluding. Here we go. Listen to what they say. <laughs> it's remarkable. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered to the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. Yeah. Imagine that. So let's kill him. We can't let him continue to perform these signs because they know these signs are clearly a work of God. Only a man sent from heaven, only a son of God can perform the things that he's performing. So if we let him keep going, people could believe we can't have that. Or our nice, sweet little gig that we've out, carved out for ourselves is over. We're done for. Lose our land, lose... What are the people going to think of the Sanhedrin? They're going to want to stone us. Now into Acts, Acts 2. Peter again, that powerful first sermon. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Remember, a little after this, they're cut to the heart. There's compunction there. What will we do? What must we do? See, they're hearing these words with ears to hear. John 14, 10 to 11. Philip in the upper room. Do you not believe? He's, this is Jesus saying to Philip in the upper room. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me. Wow! That's a statement, isn't it? Does his works. We are one, inextricably, incomprehensibly. We are one. Philip, when you see me, who, do the, who does he see? You've seen the Father, that's right. You've seen the Father. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on count of the works themselves. Amazing that there are those who could still reject him. John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. You can see why at the judgment they'll be without excuse, right? It's just, you got no excuse. If you were alive during the ministry of Jesus and you've seen all that he had done, I mean, can you imagine going and having supper with Lazarus? After he was raised from the dead? What was that like? What did he look like? Let's not go there. He had to, the only guy who has to die twice. How about that? <laughs> not want to sign on for that. They still didn't believe him. John 15, 22 to 25. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, no one else did, no one else could, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. 
These are my father's works. They're not just mine. This is the Godhead, friend. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So the word cannot be broken. The word is absolutely true, infallible in all of its judgments, in all of its perspectives. It's without fail in its originals. Verse 39, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Same thing happened in, in chapter 7. Remember verse 30. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That's right. So he's, there we are again. Finally, five. And this is the most important statement, perhaps. Those who hear the truth, accept and embrace it, will believe. Those who hear it with sincerity, with open hearts, ready to consider what's being said here, will believe. Put it this way. If they don't, it's willful. That's why we call it unbelief, not disbelief. Disbelief is like an atheist. Unbelief is willful. They're not coming to Christ. They're not believing it is a choice of theirs. It's a choice, sadly. Verse 40 and 41, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. It's the truth that's in the words. John didn't do any signs. Why not, by the way? Because he wasn't an apostle. He was the forerunner. He was there to speak. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's his job. And whatever else he taught during the full run he had until he lost his head, he spoke true about Jesus. That's what people want. They want the truth. We are getting further and further away from hearing what? Truth. We long for it. We yearn for it. Why? Because that's, well, that's who Jesus is. We hate lies. We hate deception. That's what we hate because it's the Antichrist. It's against Christ. It puts suggestions in people's minds that turn them away from Christ and what he has to say. John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Jesus and his disciples depart for about three or four months, come back on Palm Sunday, as I mentioned in chapter 12, triumphal entry. It's time to finally receive permission to put him to death. This was deliberate. This, this is a purposeful decision that Jesus made to go to Perea where John was baptizing and he was out there too. Why? Because people were responding. You've got both the forerunner out there. The prophesied forerunner who had come before Messiah Christ there with Messiah. And so people were responding. 
wouldn't you go there? Or would you hang out in Jerusalem with people with rocks in their hands glaring at you? Pretty easy choice, you'd think. This was deliberate. John was preparing the way. Though John didn't perform a sign, they believed his testimony of Jesus. They discovered the veracity in what he said about Jesus by testing. We don't know. It doesn't go into depth on that, but they must have. Test the spirits. 1 John 4, verse 1, yeah? Test the spirit. Be a Berean. See if it's true. See if it, if it gels with Scripture. Watch and see. God invites us to do that. Look and see if these things aren't so. Look. It brings him joy that we would investigate, but not to find loopholes, as W.C. Fields said when they asked him why he's reading the Bible. Looking for loopholes, looking for loopholes. Can't believe we're at a time where most people don't know who that was. <laughs> Verse 42, glorious, glorious conclusion. And many believed in him there. These many that believe are brought to belief at least by significant part because John the Baptist spoke the truth. That's our takeaway. We look and we don't question God with what he has to say. We bow down before the King of Kings and we say, yes, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. These are unbelievers, not disbelievers. That's our choice, to believe or not. But you can't craft your own concept of what Christianity is, and so many do. Oh, I'm a Christian. You following Jesus? Well, yeah, because I go to church each week. I read the Bible on occasion to make myself feel good. I pray. Are you following him? If you are, he'll challenge you. He'll challenge you with what you do with the temptations that he appoints for you. How will you respond? Will you respond with patience, grace, mercy, kindness, and goodness? Will you respond by remaining faithful and loyal? Or does this test preclude is he still have his winnowing fork out, even though somebody's claimed to be a Christian for years? That's the terrifying thought. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the words from your very own lips that say the scripture cannot be broken. We trust in that, that what we have before us here in its originals is nothing short of that very perfect word of God speaking to us in a living way. The word of God is living and active. It pierces through to the heart. So today, O oh Lord, as you would pierce our hearts with your own word, transform us. Transform us. Perhaps somebody heard the word in a new way today. Lord, may they follow you in the dictates of what you said in this authoritative, infallible, inspired, eternal word of God.
We ask these things from you so that our souls might have eternal life with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.